0: And now, Tarzan of the Apes, Chapter 3, Life and Death. Morning found them but little, if at all, refreshed, though it was with a feeling of intense relief that they saw the day dawn. As soon as they had made their meager breakfast of salt pork, coffee, and biscuit, Clayton commenced work upon their house, for he realized that they could hope for no safety and no peace of mind at night until four strong walls effectually barred the jungle life from them. The task was an arduous one, and required the better part of a month, though he built but one small room. He constructed his cabin of small logs about six inches in diameter, stopping the chinks with clay, which he found at the depth of a few feet beneath the surface soil. At one end he built a fireplace of small stones from the beach. These also he set in clay, and when the house had been entirely completed, applied a coating of the clay to the entire outside surface to the thickness of four inches. In the window opening he set small branches about an inch in diameter both vertically and horizontally and so woven that they formed a substantial grating that could withstand the strength of a powerful animal. Thus they obtained air and proper ventilation without fear of lessening the safety of their cabin. The A-shaped roof was thatched with small branches laid close together and over these long jungle grass and palm fronds with a final coating of clay. The door he built of pieces of the packing boxes which had held their belongings, nailing one piece upon another, the grain of contiguous layers running transversely until he had a solid body some three inches thick and of such great strength that they were both moved to laughter as they gazed upon it. Here the greatest difficulty confronted Clayton, for he had no means whereby to hang his massive door now that he had built it. After two days' work, however, he succeeded in fashioning two massive hardwood hinges, and with these he hung the door so that it opened and closed easily. The stuccoing and other final touches were added after they moved into the house, which they had done as soon as the roof was on, piling their boxes before the door at night and thus having a comparatively safe and comfortable habitation. The building of a bed, chairs, table, and shelves was a relatively easy matter, so that by the end of the second month, they were well settled, and, but for the constant dread of attack by wild beasts and the ever-growing loneliness, they were not uncomfortable or unhappy. At night, great beasts snarled and roared about their tiny cabin, but, so accustomed may one become to oft-repeated noises, that soon they paid little attention to them, sleeping soundly the whole night through. Thrice they had caught fleeting glimpses of great man-like figures like that of the first night, but never at sufficiently close range to know positively whether the half-seen forms were those of man or brute. The brilliant birds and the little monkeys had become accustomed to their new acquaintances, and as they had evidently never seen human beings before, they, presently, after their first fright had worn off, approached closer and closer, impaled by that strange curiosity which dominates the wild creatures of the forest and the jungle and the plain, so that within the first month several of the birds had gone so far as even to accept morsels of food from the friendly hands of the Claytons. One afternoon, while Clayton was working upon an addition to their cabin, for he contemplated building several more rooms, a number of their grotesque little friends came shrieking and scolding through the trees from the direction of the ridge. And ever as they fled, they cast fearful glances back of them, and finally they stopped near Clayton, jabbering excitedly to him, as though to warn him of approaching danger. At last he saw it, the thing the little monkeys so feared, the man-brood of which the Claytons had caught occasional fleeting glimpses. It was approaching through the jungle in a semi-erect position, now and then placing the backs of its closed fists upon the ground. A great anthropoid ape, and as it advanced, it emitted deep guttural growls and an occasional low barking sound. Clayton was at some distance from the cabin, having come to fell a particularly perfect tree for his building operation. Grown careless for months of continued safety, during which time he'd seen no dangerous animals during the daylight hours. He had left his rifles and revolvers all within the little cabin. And now that he saw the great ape crashing through the underbrush directly toward him and from a direction which practically cut him off from escape, he felt a vague little shiver play up and down his spine. He knew that armed only with an ax, his chances with this ferocious monster were small indeed. And Alice, oh God, he thought, what would become of Alice? There was yet a slight chance of reaching the cabin. He turned and ran toward it, shouting an alarm to his wife to run in and close the great door in case the ape cut off his retreat. Lady Greystoke had been sitting a little way from the cabin and when she heard his cry she looked up to see the ape springing with almost incredible swiftness for so large and awkward an animal in an effort to head off Clayton. With a low cry she sprang toward the cabin as she entered gave a backward glance which filled her soul with terror for the brute had intercepted her husband who now stood at bay grasping his axe with both hands ready to swing it upon the infuriated animal when he should make his final charge close and bolt the door Alice cried Clayton I can finish this fellow with my axe but he knew he was facing a horrible death and so did she The ape was a great bull, weighing probably 300 pounds. His nasty close-set eyes gleamed hatred from beneath his shaggy brows, while his great canine fangs were bared in a horrid snarl as he paused a moment before his prey. Over the brute's shoulder, Clayton could see the doorway of his cabin, not twenty paces distant, and a great wave of horror and fear swept over him as he saw his young wife emerge, armed with one of his rifles. She had always been afraid of firearms and would never touch them. But now she rushed toward the ape with the fearlessness of a lioness protecting its young. Get back, Alice, shouted Clayton. For God's sake, go back. But she would not heed. And just then the ape charged so that Clayton could say no more. The man swung his axe with all his mighty strength. But the powerful brute seized it in those terrible hands and tearing it from Clayton's grasp hurled it far to one side. With an ugly snarl, he closed upon his defenseless victim, but ere his fangs had reached the throat they thirsted for, there was a sharp report and a bullet entered the ape's back between his shoulders. Throwing Clayton to the ground, the beast turned upon his new enemy. There before him stood the terrified girl, vainly trying to fire another bullet into the animal's body, but she did not understand the mechanism of the firearm and the hammer fell futilely upon an empty cartridge. Almost simultaneously, Clayton regained his feet, and without thought of the utter hopelessness of it, he rushed forward to drag the ape from his wife's prostrate form. With little or no effort he succeeded, and the great bulk rolled inertly upon the turf before him. The ape was dead. The bullet, the one bullet, had done its work. A hasty examination of his wife revealed no marks upon her and Clayton decided that the huge brute had died the instant he had sprung toward Alice. Gently he lifted his wife's still unconscious form and bore her to the little cabin, but it was fully two hours before she regained consciousness. Her first words filled Clayton with vague apprehension. For some time after regaining her senses, Alice gazed wonderingly about the interior of the little cabin and then, with a satisfied sigh, said, "'Oh, John! Oh, John! It is so good to be really home. I've had an awful dream, dear. I thought we were no longer in London, but in some horrible place where great beasts attacked us.' "'There, there, Alice," he said, stroking her forehead. "'Try to sleep again, and do not worry your head about bad dreams.' That night, a little son was born in the tiny cabin beside the primeval forest, while a leopard screamed before the door, and the deep notes of a lion's roar sounded from beyond the ridge. Lady Greystoke never recovered from the shock of the great ape's attack, and though she lived for a year after her baby was born, she was never again outside the cabin, nor did she ever fully realize that she was not in England. Sometimes she would question Clayton as to the strange noises of the nights, the absence of servants and friends, and the strange rudeness of the furnishings within her room. But, though he made no effort to deceive her, never could she grasp the meaning of it all. In other ways she was quite rational, and the joy and happiness she took in the possession of her little son and the constant attentions of her husband made that year a very happy one for her, the happiest of her young life that it would have been beset by worries and apprehension had she been in full command of her mental faculties. Clayton well knew, so that while he suffered terribly to see her so, there were times when he was almost glad, for her sake, that she could not understand. Long since had he given up any hope of rescue, except through accident. With unremitting zeal he had worked to beautify the interior of the cabin. Skins of lion and panther covered the floor, cupboards and bookcases lined the walls odd vases made by his own hand from the clay of the region held beautiful tropical flowers curtains of grass and bamboo covered the windows and the most arduous task of all with his meager assortment of tools he had fashioned lumber to neatly seal the walls and ceiling and lay a smooth floor within the cabin that he had been able to turn his hands at all to such unaccustomed labor was a source of mild wonder to him but he loved the work because it was for her and the tiny light that had come to cheer them, though adding a hundredfold to his responsibilities and to the terribleness of their situation. During the year that followed, Clayton was several times attacked by the great apes, which now seemed to continually infest the vicinity of the cabin. But as he never again ventured outside without both rifle and revolvers, he had little fear of the huge beasts. He had strengthened the window protections and fitted a unique wooden lock to the cabin door so that when he hunted for game and fruits, as it was constantly necessary for him to do to ensure their sustenance, he had no fear that any animal could break into the little home. At first he shot much of the game from the cabin windows, but toward the end the animals learned to fear the strange lair from whence issued the terrifying thunder of his rifle. In his leisure, Clayton read, often aloud to his wife, from the store of books he'd brought for their new home. Among these were many for little children, picture books, primers, readers, for they had known that their little child would be old enough for such before they might hope to return to England. At other times, Clayton wrote in his diary, which he'd always been accustomed to keep in French, and in which he recorded the details of their strange life. This book he kept locked in a little metal box. A year from the day her little son was born, Lady Alice passed quietly away in the night. So peaceful was her end that it was hours before Clayton could awake to a realization that his wife was dead. The horror of the situation came to him very slowly, and it is doubtful that he ever fully realized the enormity of his sorrow and the fearful responsibility that had devolved upon him with the care of that wee thing, his son, still a nursing babe. THE LAST ENTRY IN HIS DIARY WAS MADE THE MORNING FOLLOWING HER DEATH AND THERE HE RECITES THE SAD DETAILS IN A MATTER-OF-FACT WAY THAT ADDS TO THE PATHOS OF IT FOR IT BREATHES A TIRED APATHY BORN OF LONG SORROW AND HOPELESSNESS WHICH EVEN THIS CRUEL BLOW COULD SCARCELY AWAKE TO FURTHER SUFFERING. MY LITTLE SON IS CRYING FOR NOURISHMENT. OH, ALICE, ALICE, WHAT SHALL I DO? and as John Clayton wrote the last words, his hand was destined ever to pen. He dropped his head wearily upon his outstretched arms, where they rested upon the table he had built for her, who lay still and cold in the bed beside him. For a long time, no sound broke the death-like stillness of the jungle midday, save the piteous wailing of the tiny man-child and the sounds of the jungle around him. Chapter 4 The Apes In the forest of the tableland, land a mile back from the ocean, old Kerchak the ape was on a rampage of rage among his people. The younger and lighter members of his tribe scampered to the higher branches of the great trees to escape his wrath, risking their lives upon branches that scarce supported their weight, rather than face old Kerchak in one of his fits of uncontrolled anger. The other males scattered in all directions, "'and not before the infuriated brute "'had felt the vertebra of one snap "'between his great foaming jaws. "'A luckless young female slipped from an insecure hold "'upon a high branch and came crashing to the ground, "'almost at Kerchak's feet. "'With a wild scream he was upon her, "'tearing a great piece from her side with his mighty teeth "'and striking her viciously upon her head and shoulders "'with a broken tree limb "'until her skull was crushed to a jelly. "'And then he spied Kala, "'who, returning from a search for food with her young babe, "'was ignorant of the state of the mighty male's temper "'until suddenly the shrill warnings of her fellows "'caused her to scamper madly for safety. "'But Kerchak was close upon her, "'so close that he had almost grasped her ankle "'had she not made a furious leap far into space "'from one tree to another, "'a perilous chance which apes seldom, if ever, take, "'unless so closely pursued by danger "'that there is no other alternative.' She made the leap successfully but as she grasped the limb of a further tree the sudden jar loosened the hold of the tiny babe where it clung frantically to her neck and she saw the little thing hurled turning and twisting to the ground thirty feet below. With a low cry of dismay Kala rushed headlong to its side thoughtless now of the danger from Kerchak but when she gathered the wee mangled form to her bosom life had left it. With low moans, she sat cuddling the body to her. Nor did Kerchak attempt to molest her. With the death of the babe, his fit of demoniacal rage passed as suddenly as it had seized him. Kerchak was a huge king ape, weighing perhaps three hundred and fifty pounds. His forehead was extremely low and receding. His eyes bloodshot, small and close, set to his coarse, flat nose. His ears large and thin, but smaller than most of his kind. His awful temper and his mighty strength made him supreme among the little tribe into which he had been born some twenty years before. And now that he was in his prime, there was no simian in all the mighty forest through which he roved that dared contest his right to rule, nor did the other and larger animals molest him. Old Tantor the elephant, alone of all the wild savage life, feared him not, and he alone did Kerchak fear. When Tantor trumpeted, the great ape scurried with his fellows high among the trees of the second terrace. The tribe of Anthropoids over which Kerchak ruled with an iron hand and bared fangs numbered some six or eight families, each family consisting of an adult male with his females and their young, numbering in all some 60 or 70 apes. Kala was the youngest mate of a male called Tublat meaning broken nose, and the child she had seen dashed to death was her first, for she was but nine or ten years old. Notwithstanding her youth, she was large and powerful, a splendid, clean-limbed animal, with a round, high forehead, which denoted more intelligence than most of her kind possessed. So also she had a great capacity for mother love and mother sorrow. But she was still an ape, a huge, fierce, terrible beast of a species closely allied to the gorilla yet more intelligent which with the strength of their cousin made her kind the most fearsome of those awe-inspiring progenitors of man when the tribe saw that kerchak's rage had ceased, they came slowly down from their arboreal retreats and pursued again the various occupations which he had interrupted the young played and frolicked about among the trees and bushes Some of the adults lay prone upon the soft mat of dead and decaying vegetation, which covered the ground, while others turned over pieces of fallen branches and clods of earth in search of the small bugs and reptiles which formed a part of their diet. Others again searched the surrounding trees for fruit, nuts, small birds, and eggs. They had passed an hour or so thus when Kerchak called them together, and with a word of command to them to follow him, set off toward the sea. They traveled for the most part upon the ground, where it was open, following the path of the great elephants whose comings and goings break the only roads through those tangled mazes of bush, vine, creeper and tree. When they walked it was with a rolling, awkward motion, placing the knuckles of their closed hands upon the ground and swinging their ungainly bodies forward. When the way was through the lower trees, they moved more swiftly. Swinging from branch to branch with the agility of their smaller cousins, the monkeys. And all the way, Kala carried her little dead baby, hugged closely to her breast. It was shortly afternoon when they reached a ridge overlooking the beach, where below them lay the tiny cottage, which was Kerchak's goal that day. He had seen many of his kind go to their deaths before the loud noise made by the little black stick in the hands of the strange white ape who lived in that wonderful lair. "'and Kerchak had made up his brute mind "'to own that death-dealing contrivance "'and to explore the interior of the mysterious den. "'He wanted very, very much "'to feel his teeth sink into the neck of the queer animal "'that he had learned to hate and fear, "'and because of this he came often with his tribe "'to reconnoiter, waiting for a time "'when the white ape should be off his guard. "'Of late they had quit attacking.' "'or even showing themselves, "'for every time they had done so in the past "'the little stick had roared out "'its terrible message of death "'to some member of the tribe. "'Today there was no sign of the man about, "'and from where they watched "'they could see that the cabin door was open. "'Slowly, cautiously, and noiselessly "'they crept through the jungle "'toward the little cabin. "'There were no growls, "'no fierce screams of rage.' the little black stick it taught them to come quietly lest they awaken it. On, on they came, until Kerchak himself slunk stealthily to the very door and peered within. Behind him were two males, and then Kala, closely straining the little dead form to her breast. Inside the den they saw the strange white ape lying half across a table, his head buried in his arms, and on the bed lay a figure covered by a sailcloth while from a tiny, rustic cradle came the plaintive wailing of a baby. Noiselessly, Kerchak entered, crouching for the charge, and then John Clayton rose with a sudden start and faced them. The sight that met his eyes must have frozen him with horror, for there, within the door, stood three great bull apes, while behind them crowded many more. How many he never knew for his revolvers were hanging on the far wall beside his rifle, and Kerchak was charging. When the King Ape released the limp form which had been John Clayton, Lord Greystoke, he turned his attention toward the little cradle. But Kala was there before him, and when he would have grasped the child, she snatched it herself, and before he could intercept her, she had bolted to the door and taken refuge in a high tree. As she took up the little live baby of Alice Clayton, she dropped the dead body of her own into the empty cradle. For the wail of the living had answered the call of universal motherhood within her wild breast, which the dead could not still. High up among the branches of a mighty tree, she hugged the shrieking infant to her bosom, and soon the instinct that was as dominant in this fierce female as it had been in the breast of his tender and beautiful mother, the instinct of mother love, reached out to the tiny man-child's half-formed understanding, and he became quiet. Then hunger closed the gap between them, and the son of an English lord and an English lady nursed at the breast of Kala, the great ape. In the meantime, the beasts within the cabin were warily examining the contents of this strange lair. Once satisfied that Clayton was dead, Kerchak turned his attention to the thing which lay upon the bed, covered by a piece of sailcloth. Gingerly he lifted one corner of the shroud, but when he saw the body of the woman beneath, he tore the cloth roughly from her form and seized the still white throat in his huge hairy hands. A moment he let his fingers sink deep into the cold flesh, and then, realizing that she was already dead, he turned from her to examine the contents of the room. Nor did he again molest the body of either Lady Alice or Sir John. The rifle hanging upon the wall caught his first attention. It was for this strange, death-dealing thunderstick that he had yearned for months, but now that it was within his grasp, he scarcely had the temerity to seize it. Cautiously he approached the thing, ready to flee precipitately should it speak in its deep roaring tones, as he had heard it speak before, the last words to those of his kind who, through ignorance or rashness, had attacked the wonderful white ape that had borne it. Deep in the beast's intelligence was something which assured him that the thunder stick was only dangerous when in the hands of one who could manipulate it. But yet it was several minutes ere he could bring himself to touch it. Instead, he walked back and forth along the floor before it, turning his head so that never once did his eyes leave the object of his desire. Using his long arms as a man uses crutches and rolling his huge carcass from side to side with each stride, the great king ape paced to and fro, uttering deep growls, occasionally punctuated with the ear-piercing scream, of which there is no more terrifying noise in all the jungle. Presently he halted before the rifle. Slowly he raised a huge hand until it almost touched the shining barrel, only to withdraw it once more and continue his hurried pacing. It was as though the great brute by this show of fearlessness and through the medium of his wild voice was endeavoring to bolster up his courage to the point which would permit him to take the rifle in his hand. Again he stopped and this time succeeded in forcing his reluctant hand to the cold steel only to snatch it away almost immediately and resume his restless beat. Time after time this strange ceremony was repeated but on each occasion with increased confidence until... Finally, the rifle was torn from its hook and lay in the grasp of the great brute. Finding that it harmed him not, Kerchak began to examine it closely. He felt of it from end to end, peered down the black depths of the muzzle, fingered the sights, the breech, the stock, and finally the trigger. During all these operations, the apes who had entered sat huddled near the door watching their chief while those outside strained and crowded to catch a glimpse of what transpired within. When Kerchak's finger closed upon the trigger, there was a deafening roar in the little room, and the apes at and beyond the door fell over one another in their wild anxiety to escape. Kerchak was equally frightened, so frightened, in fact, that he quite forgot to throw aside the author of that fearful noise, but bolted for the door with the rifle still tightly clutched in one hand. As he passed through the opening, the front sight of the rifle caught upon the edge of the inswung door with sufficient force to close it tightly after the fleeing ape. When Kerchak came to a halt a short distance from the cabin and discovered that he still held the rifle, he dropped it as he might have dropped a red-hot iron. Nor did he again attempt to recover it. The noise was too much for his brute nerves. But he was now quite convinced that the terrible stick was quite harmless by itself. "'if left alone. "'It was an hour before the apes could again bring themselves "'to approach the cabin to continue their investigations, "'and when they finally did so, "'they found to their chagrin that the door was closed "'and so securely fastened that they could not force it. "'The cleverly constructed latch which Clayton had made for the door "'had sprung as Kerchak passed out, "'nor could the apes find means of ingress "'through the heavily barred windows.' After roaming about the vicinity for a short time, they started back for the deeper forest and the higher land from whence they had come. Kala had not once come to earth with her little adopted babe, but now Kerchak called to her to descend with the rest, and as there was no note of anger in his voice, she dropped lightly from branch to branch and joined the others on their homeward march. Those of the apes who attended to examine Kala's strange baby were repulsed with bared fangs and low menacing growls, accompanied by words of warning from Kala. When they assured her that they meant the child no harm, she permitted them to come close, but would not allow them to touch her charge. It was as though she knew that her baby was frail and delicate, and feared lest the rough hands of her fellows might injure the little thing. Another thing she did, and which made traveling an onerous trial for her, remembering the death of her own little one, she clung desperately to the new babe, with one hand, whenever they were upon the march. The other young rode upon their mother's backs, their little arms tightly clasping the hairy necks before them, while their legs were locked beneath their mother's armpits. But not so with Kala. She held the small form of the little Lord Greystoke tightly to her breast, where the dainty hands clutched the long black hair which covered that portion of her body. She had seen one child fall from her back to a terrible death and she would take no further chances with this. Chapter 5. The White Ape Tenderly, Kala nursed her little waif, wondering silently why it did not gain strength and agility as did the little apes of other mothers. It was nearly a year from the time the little fellow came into her possession before he could walk alone. And as for climbing, my, but how stupid he was! Kala sometimes talked with the older females about her young hopeful but none of them could understand how a child could be so slow and backward in learning to care for itself. Why, it could not even find food alone, and more than twelve moons had passed since Kala had come upon it. Had they known that the child had seen thirteen moons before it had come into Kala's possession, they would have considered its case as absolutely hopeless, for the little apes of their own tribe were as far advanced in two or three moons as this little stranger was after twenty-five. Tublat, Kala's husband. "'was sorely vexed, "'and but for the females careful watching "'would have put the child to death. "'He will never be a great ape,' he argued. "'Always will you have to carry him and protect him. "'What good will he be to the tribe? "'None. Only a burden. "'Let us leave him quietly sleeping among the tall grasses, "'that you may bear other and stronger apes "'to guard us in our old age.' "'Never, broken nose,' replied Kala. "'If I must carry him forever,' So be it. And then Tublet went to Kerchak to urge him to use his authority with Kala and force her to give up Little Tarzan, which was the name they had given to the tiny Lord Greystoke, and which meant white skin. But when Kerchak spoke to her about it, Kala threatened to run away from the tribe if they did not leave her in peace with the child. And as this is one of the inalienable rights of the jungle folk, if they be dissatisfied among their own people, they bothered her no more for Kala was a fine, clean-limbed young female, and they did not wish to lose her. As Tarzan grew, he made more and more rapid strides, so that by the time he was ten years old he was an excellent climber, and, on the ground, could do many wonderful things which were beyond the powers of his little brothers and sisters. In many ways did he differ from them, and they often marveled at his superior cunning, but in strength and size he was deficient. For at ten, the great anthropoids were fully grown, some of them towering over six feet in height, while little Tarzan was still but a half-grown boy. Yet, such a boy. From early childhood he had used his hands to swing from branch to branch after the manner of his giant mother, and as he grew older he spent hour upon hour daily speeding through the treetops with his brothers and sisters. He could spring twenty feet across space at the dizzy heights of the forest top, and grasp with unerring precision, and without apparent jar, a limb waving wildly in the path of an approaching tornado. He could drop 20 feet at a stretch from limb to limb in rapid descent to the ground, or he could gain the utmost pinnacle of the loftiest tropical giant with the ease and swiftness of a squirrel. Though but 10 years old, he was fully as strong as the average man of 30, and far more agile than the most practiced athlete ever becomes and day by day his strength was increasing. His life among these fierce apes had been happy, for his recollection held no other life. Nor did he know that there existed within the universe aught else than his little forest and the wild jungle animals with which he was familiar. He was nearly ten before he commenced to realize that a great difference existed between himself and his fellows. His little body burned brown by exposure, suddenly caused him feelings of intense shame, for he realized that it was entirely hairless, like some low snake or other reptile. He attempted to obviate this by plastering himself from head to foot with mud, but this dried and fell off. Besides, it felt so uncomfortable that he quickly decided that he preferred the shame to the discomfort. In the higher land which his tribe frequented was a little lake, and it was here that Tarzan first saw his face in the clear, still waters of its bosom. It was on a sultry day of the dry season that he and one of his cousins had gone down to the bank to drink. As they leaned over, both little faces were mirrored on the placid pool. The fierce and terrible features of the ape beside those of the aristocratic scion of an old English house. Tarzan was appalled. It had been bad enough to be hairless, but to own such a countenance? He wondered that the other apes could look at him at all. That tiny slit of a mouth "'and those puny white teeth! "'How they looked beside the mighty lips "'and powerful fangs of his more fortunate brothers! "'And the little pinched nose of his, "'so thin was it that it looked half-starved. "'He turned red as he compared it "'with the beautiful broad nostrils of his companion. "'Such a generous nose! "'Why, it spread half across his face! "'It certainly must be fine to be so handsome,' "'thought poor little Tarzan. Ah. "'But when he saw his own eyes,' Ah, that was the final blow! A brown spot, a grey circle, and then blank whiteness? Frightful! Not even the snakes had such hideous eyes as he did. So intent was he upon this personal appraisement of his features that he did not hear the parting of the tall grass behind him as a great body pushed itself stealthily through the jungle. Nor did his companion, the ape, hear either, for he was drinking, and the noise of his sucking lips and gurgles of satisfaction drowned the quiet approach of the intruder. Not thirty paces behind the two, she crouched, Sabre, the huge lioness, lashing her tail. Cautiously she moved a great padded paw forward, noiselessly placing it before she lifted the next. Thus she advanced, her belly low, (laughs) almost touching the surface of the ground, a great cat preparing to spring upon its prey. Now she was within ten feet of the two unsuspecting little playfellows. Carefully she drew her hind feet well up beneath her body, the great muscles rolling under the beautiful skin. So low she was crouching now that she seemed flattened to the earth except for the upward bend of the glossy back as it gathered for the spring. No longer the tail lashed, quiet and straight behind her it lay. An instant she paused thus, as though turned to stone, And then, with an awful scream, she sprang. Sabre, the lioness, was a wise hunter. To one less wise, the wild alarm of her fierce cry as she sprang would have seemed a foolish thing. For could she not more surely have fallen upon her victims had she but quietly leaped without that loud shriek? But Sabre knew well the wondrous quickness of the jungle folk and their almost unbelievable powers of hearing. To them the sudden scraping of one blade of grass across another was as effectual a warning as her loudest cry, and Sabre knew that she could not make that mighty leap without a little noise. Her wild scream was not a warning. It was voiced to freeze her poor victims in a paralysis of terror for the tiny fraction of an instant which would suffice for her mighty claws to sink into their soft flesh and hold them beyond hope of escape. So far as the ape was concerned... Saber reasoned correctly. The little fellow crouched, trembling just an instant, but that instant was quite long enough to prove his undoing. Not so, however, with Tarzan, the man-child. His life amidst the dangers of the jungle had taught him to meet emergencies with self-confidence, and his higher intelligence resulted in a quickness of mental action far beyond the powers of the apes. So the scream of Saber, the lioness, galvanized the brain and muscles of little Tarzan into instant action. Before him lay the deep waters of the little lake. Behind him, certain death, a cruel death beneath tearing claws and rending fangs. Tarzan had always hated water, except as a medium for quenching his thirst. He hated it because he connected it with the chill and discomfort of the torrential rains, and he feared it for the thunder and lightning and wind which accompanied them. "'the deep waters of the lake "'he had been taught by his wild mother to avoid. "'And further, "'had he not seen little Nita "'sink beneath its quiet surface "'only a few short weeks before, "'never to return to the tribe? "'But of the two evils "'his quick mind chose the lesser ere the first note of Saber's scream "'had scarce broken the quiet of the jungle, "'and before the great beast "'had covered half her leap, "'Tarzan felt the chill waters "'close above his head. "'He could not swim.' and the water was very deep, but still he lost no particle of that self-confidence and resourcefulness which were the badges of his superior being. Rapidly he moved his hands and feet in an attempt to scramble upward, and possibly more by chance than by design, he fell into the stroke that a dog uses when swimming, so that within a few seconds his nose was above water, and he found that he could keep it there by continuing his strokes, and also make progress through the water. He was much surprised and pleased with this new acquirement which had been so suddenly thrust upon him, but he had no time for thinking much upon it. He was now swimming parallel to the bank, and there he saw the cruel beast that would have seized him, crouching upon the still form of his little playmate. The lioness was intently watching Tarzan, evidently expecting him to return to shore, but this the boy had no intention of doing. Instead, he raised his voice in the call of distress common to his tribe, adding to it the warning which would prevent the would-be rescuers from running into the clutches of Sabre. Almost immediately there came an answer from the distance, and presently forty or fifty great apes swung rapidly and majestically through the trees toward the scene of the tragedy. In the lead was Kala, for she had recognized the tones of her best beloved, and with her was the mother of the little ape who lay dead beneath cruel sabre. Though more powerful and better equipped for fighting than the apes, the lioness had no desire to meet these enraged adults, and with a snarl of hatred she sprang quickly into the brush and disappeared. Tarzan now swam to shore and clambered quickly upon dry land. The feeling of freshness and exhilaration which the cool waters had imparted to him filled his little being with grateful surprise, and ever after he lost no opportunity to take a daily plunge. "'in lake or stream or ocean "'when it was possible to do so. "'For a long time "'Kala could not "'accustom herself to the sight, "'for though her people "'could swim when forced to it, "'they did not like to enter water "'and never did so voluntarily. "'The adventure with the lioness "'gave Tarzan food "'for pleasurable memories, "'for it was such affairs "'which broke the monotony "'of his daily life, "'otherwise but a dull round "'of searching for food, "'eating and sleeping.' The tribe to which he belonged roamed a tract extending roughly 25 miles along the seacoast and some 50 miles inland. This they traversed almost continually, occasionally remaining for months in one locality, but as they moved through the trees with great speed, they often covered the territory in a very few days. Much depended upon food supply, climactic conditions, and the prevalence of animals of the more dangerous species, though Kerchak often led them on long marches "'for no other reason than that he had tired "'of remaining in the same place. "'At night they slept where darkness overtook them, "'lying upon the ground, "'and sometimes covering their heads, "'and more seldom their bodies, "'with the great leaves of the elephant's ear. Two or three might lie cuddled in each other's arms "'for additional warmth if the night were chill, "'and thus Tarzan had slept in Kala's arms nightly "'for all these years. "'That the huge fierce brute loved this child of another race,' beyond question and he too gave to the great hairy beast all the affection that would have belonged to his fair young mother had she lived when he was disobedient she cuffed him it is true but she was never cruel to him and was more often caressing him than chastising him tublat her mate always hated tarzan and on several occasions had come near ending his youthful career Tarzan, on his part, never lost an opportunity to show that he fully reciprocated his foster father's sentiments, and whenever he could safely annoy him, or make faces at him, or hurl insults upon him from the safety of his mother's arms, or the slender branches of the higher trees, he did so. His superior intelligence and cunning permitted him to invent a thousand diabolical tricks to add to the burdens of Tublet's life. Early in his boyhood he had learned to form ropes by twisting and tying long grasses together, and with these he was forever tripping tublet or attempting to hang him from some overhanging branch. By constant playing and experimenting with these he learned to tie rude knots and making sliding nooses, and with these he and the younger apes amused themselves. What Tarzan did they tried to do also, but he alone originated and became proficient. One day, while playing thus, Tarzan had thrown his rope at one of his fleeing companions, retaining the other end in his grasp. By accident, the noose fell squarely around the running ape's neck, bringing him to a sudden and surprising halt. Ah, here was a new game, a fine game, thought Tarzan, and immediately he attempted to repeat the trick. And thus, by painstaking and continued practice, he learned the art of roping. Now indeed was the life of Tublet, a living nightmare. In sleep, upon the march, night or day, he never knew when that quiet noose would slip about his neck and nearly choke the life out of him. Kala punished. Tublet swore dire vengeance, and old Kerchak took notice and warned and threatened, but all to no avail. Tarzan defied them all, and the thin, strong noose continued to settle about Tublet's neck whenever he least expected it. The other apes derived unlimited amusement from Tublet's discomfiture, for a broken nose was a disagreeable old fellow, whom no one liked anyway. In Tarzan's clever little mind, many thoughts revolved, and back of these was his divine power of reason. If he could catch his fellow apes with his long arm of many grasses, why not Sabre, the lioness? It was the germ of a thought, which, however, was destined to mull around in his conscious and subconscious mind until it resulted in magnificent achievement. But that came in later years. Thank you very much for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road for Tarzan of the Apes. Please do take a minute to send a review if you're an Apple listener for 1001 Stories for the Road. We'd greatly appreciate it if you've enjoyed this show.